Well, thanks again for being at Grace. Uh, we're glad you're here today. I want to point out one thing. Next, next weekend is the Heartbeat Hope Medical Walk for Life. And uh, that's a ministry that we're very much supportive of. And uh, we have several people in our church that are registered, and, and you can support them or sponsor them if you want. Uh, they have a Facebook account that you could go to and get connected that way. I just signed up this morning to do that, and some of the Fight Club guys are doing that with me. That's next Saturday, so, so remember that. Uh, we're in a series, Ideal Family, and Jay just launched us with uh, his, the song that he did there at the end, Good, Good Father, as today our topic is about parenting. And so uh, the ideal family, we're looking at uh, children and parents. We're going to get to that. But remember, ideal family is all about the, the ideal and then the real that we're living in. And a lot of times, uh, because that doesn't measure up, there's a gap that creates some tension. And so we live in this tension. And of course, the temptation is to throw out the ideal, to eliminate the tension, but that just serves to... Uh, mess up our families, and then we start kind of deteriorating or cycling down to the lowest common denominator, much better, and we lose truth. Rather, we keep the ideal, God's ideal, and we strive to make our reality closer and closer to what God has called us to do, where we reach his ideal. We follow his instructions for the family, and everyone in our family will benefit. Of course, it's important to us that we we focus on our own thing, what God is calling us to do, because he gives instructions to every member of the family. And so we've looked at a lot of those, and today it's parents and children, so we're going to land on that. And where we find that is in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll be there in just a moment. I, as I've been reflecting on this the last week, I've come to realize that I'm beginning kind of a, a third generation view of family. In that I grew up as a child, that was sort of the first time I saw the, the child-parent relationship. And then as a parent, I saw that. And now I'm seeing it again as my two of my children have now become parents. And uh, Pam and I have become grandparents. And so that's kind of a new thing a few months ago. And, and what I've noticed is in those three generations, how different things are between now and when I was a child, I mean, things, there's a lot of things different, right? Um, kids today have some cool equipment. I mean, I, I'm looking at the, uh, the car seat, which actually um, Kate and Zach and uh, Jake and Bree have, have the same one for each of their children. And then it has just a base in the car, and you just set it and click it in, and then you just pull a button and unclick it. That's way better than the way it used to be. This thing also kind of sets into a stroller. It does everything. It's like a Cadillac. I mean, it's, just, it's everything you want right there. I mean, when I was a kid, we didn't have that stuff. And kids are so safe. I mean, they're all secured in there. Do you remember, you know, those of you that are my generation, you remember, there was none of that stuff going on when we were kids. I mean, we had vehicles that actually had things called lap belts but they were like invisible because they were actually stuffed down into the cracks of the seat and you never saw them. And if you did see them, it was gross. I mean, you pull them out, there's French fries, candy, lint, I mean, just all this junk came out with them. You kept those babies buried. And then we traveled around in things called station wagons. For you younger, you have to Google that. 
This is like a rolling living room. And, uh, you know, we'd drive in these things. And we didn't do the seatbelts. I remember as a kid, sometimes I would, we had, you know, bench seats. I remember riding in the middle of the front seat as a young kid. That was the preferred spot. We actually sat on a plastic box to elevate us over the, the dashboard so that we can see. No seat belts, no nothing. It's like if there was ever an accident, it'd be like a launching pad, you know, right out the window. We didn't think anything about that back then. But most of the time, of course, kids behind the front seat, right? And, and we had just sprawl out. And in a station wagon, you had this whole rear cargo area. Usually there was a sleeping bag back there. Since I, I had two brothers, I got the back seat usually so I could lay across that. This, my second brother, Wade, he actually liked to lay on the floorboard. These were not front wheel drives. You know, they had the big hump right in the middle. And he didn't, he didn't like put padding down to make it even. Like, he just laid right across that hump. He still can't walk right today, but he loved that. I'm just hearing the hum. Of the, he just, that was his preferred spot but you know probably the best spot was was in the back I mean you had all this room it's basically like a full-size bed back there you'd just be laying around and and for the cars that didn't if, if they weren't station wagons it's the same thing only then kids would lay across the back window you know up on the shelf you know and people would see them behind them they'd be is that a is that a bobblehead no that's a skinny kid with uh with a large <laughs> noggin you know that's that's what that is just weird, weird. It's not as safe. And the toys, it's the same thing, right? Toys were, I, when I was a kid, they had wood-burning kits for toys. I mean, this is a sharp piece of metal that you plugged in and would heat to 500 degrees. What could go wrong? You know, just kind of crazy. You know, and, and I don't know about today, but back then, swing sets were never anchored properly. Remember? You know, you'd swing. I don't know if we got that corrected or not. Lawn darts. You know, what was up with that? These are five-pound spikes that you launch at each. There's no instructions. You just come in a box. You start throwing them. It's nuts. Today, you know, things are just way safer for kids. And really, that's what we want, Right? As parents, and we want our kids to be safe, so we buy into all this stuff. We want to take care of them. Well, that's really what parenting's all about. We want to raise our kids to be successful people. As Christians, we want them to grow up, be successful, and follow God. That, that, that's what success is, have a passion, a heart to follow God. So what we want to see today in, in ideal family is that we want to look and see kind of where we're at and, and notice the instructions. And there are specific instructions scripture gives to children and specific instructions to parents. And we're going to look at them both. As I mentioned before, they're in Ephesians chapter 6. And here, first of all, is what it says for children, the instructions. Because Paul is going through the families, naming person after person. You can just imagine that uh, the first century church, they're gathered together. Uh, you know, they're, they're probably in a living room or the synagogue. And as they're teaching, the whole family's there. And they're going through, you know, wives, husbands, children, fathers. They're just going right down the line. And here's what he says. Children, 
Obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So right away, children very, very simply are called to obedience. This means that that children are called to obey their parents and and also that they are to honor them. And so this obedience, it's very straightforward and and, and part of it's these children who also want to follow God, that you obey them in the Lord. It's what God's telling you to do. And so you want to obey them, which means that you should obey your parents unless they're telling you to do something immoral, something wrong, obedience. And that also that you would honor them. Now, when he says children, a lot of people kind of debate this. There's a Greek word there that actually it means children, but it's not particularly young children. There's a different word for that. It really is generally accepted that this word means all children living in the home, under the roof, that they would be obedient to their parents. And, uh, and then honor your parents. In one way, obedience implies the action of doing what your parents are, are telling you to do. And in another way, the honoring your parents is, it, it, there's a little more, it's kind of the same thing, but also has the shade of meaning that there's an attitude that goes along with that action, that we are to honor them. Now, when he says this is the first commandment with promise, what he's talking about is in the Ten Commandments, honor your parents, it's number five, and it comes with this promise saying that it will be well with you, that you'll, you'll live a long life. Basically, that's saying that generally, when we are obedient and honoring to our parents, we will have a successful and long life. Now, in the first century, they didn't take that as a guarantee. We're not saying that an obedient child can never lose their life. They lived at a time with a high child morality rate. They're not saying there's no guarantee towards sickness or accidents. He's just saying a general principle is, a general truism, what God's telling us is children who are obedient and honoring to their parents are usually generally successful in life and, and live long because of that. That's, that's what he's telling us. And actually, honoring is for adults too. The obedience is not, but even grown children, even adults, we should honor our parents. And that's an attitude. And the action part of that is, for example, this was much more understood in the first century than it is today, is that it's really our obligation to make sure that our parents are cared for in their old age. That's part of honoring. There's a financial aspect of that. We need to ensure that our parents are taken care of. So that's pretty straightforward for children. Obey, honor your parents. Pretty simple. And then there's instructions to parents as well. Now, as we read this, it's going to start off fathers. Fathers should be the head of the household. We already kind of covered that. But by implication, this applies to mothers too. But here's how he, he, Paul words it then in the very next verse, in verse 4. He says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So he's saying, there's a negative there. Do not provoke your children to anger. What Paul's saying there is because... 
the parents kind of have the power, especially the father, especially in that day and age. He's saying, just like he said before, this should be a reoccurring theme to you if, you, if you'll remember. Do not use your position of power selfishly. Do not use your position of power to be harsh. Do not treat your children harshly or unfairly or unreasonably because what will happen is then they'll grow up to be embittered uh, against you. And, and so you don't want that. Really, all of your instruction to kids, we're, we're not trying to provoke them to anger. We're trying to discipline them in such a way that it restores our, our relationship or promotes our relationship together. Now, when I say don't provoke them to anger, that doesn't mean you never punish your kids because they don't like it. That means that you're, just, you're being careful, that you're being fair, you're being consistent, um, and you're not being harsh, that type of thing. So we really, all of our discipline, we should always discipline in a way that promotes relationship. That, that's really key through this. Now, the positive side of that, he says, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, the word discipline here is mainly correction. We as parents are charged by God to control our kids. It's not the school's job to have to control them. Our kids should learn to be obedient and respectful to authority from us. So, and, and if, you, if your child is kind of repeatedly getting in trouble at school, and if you're taking your child's side, there's some real red flags here. I mean, teachers are not out to, to get your kid. They're just out trying to do their job. And so if you find yourself down at school uh, sort of complaining about something on behalf of your kid, you know, more than once every other year or so, I mean, this really shouldn't be happening. So if that's happening every year or even more than once a year, that, that's probably your parenting is the issue. And you need to get that squared away because teachers should not have to control your kids, you know, a little bit, but your kids should be able to respond to authority. You know, so we, we need, it's our job to teach them that. So we need to, to get that right. Now, discipline um, is also, it's not, it's also punishment and to get them to do the right thing. And of course, there's different ways of doing that. And, and this word would include physical punishment or what we would call spanking. Now, Pam, and the, which is now becoming more and more controversial today, the whole spanking issue. Pam and I used corporal punishment. We spanked our kids. Now, if you're going to do that, especially in today's day where, where we've all seen extreme abuses of that, uh, we need to make sure that we're spanking properly. And the number one overarching rule to make sure that you never spank improperly, just one rule will keep you from, from doing that. Never spank in anger. Never spank in anger. If, you're, if your blood's up, if you're mad, it's not the time to discipline your child. You say, well, you know, you'll have to... We'll have to deal with this later, and you take care of it. But you just can't afford to, to do that. And there's whole, this is not a parenting class, but there's a whole bunch of other 
uh, tips that'll help you. You know, you should, if you spank, you, you need to teach your kids to be in a position and keep in that position. You can't be wrestling them into a position or, or you'll accidentally hurt them wrestling them into a spanking position. You teach them to kind of bend over and take it. You should use something that flexes. You sh- it should be appropriate to their age. You're basically just trying to get a sting a little bit of pain without a welt, without damage, without you know anything like that. It's just a little sting that's temporary. And that's, that's, the whole, that's what proper spanking is. So again, not a parenting class, and we teach parenting classes that we can talk about that in more detail, but uh, you just need to know that. And here's what, here's what I think that people miss about corporal punishment, because more and more people don't use it, which is okay as long as you can take care of discipline in other ways. But here's, here's the big benefit that discipline, however you do it. When kids disobey, they know they've done wrong. There are some times that kids know they have done wrong. They've, you've told them to do something, they didn't do it. And when they know they've done wrong, they don't always know that. But when they do, and you know when they do, when they know they've done wrong, they feel guilt. And they should feel guilt because they've done something wrong. Discipline is a way to deal with the guilt. You see, if you, if you feel guilt, but it's never dealt with, then what happens is you feel guilty all the time, and pretty soon you're just callous to guilt, and, and you kind of don't feel guilty anymore, and there's nothing to feel guilty about, because you just live in guilt. Really, Christianity even teaches us that we should feel guilt and that there's a way to deal with guilt so that we don't have to feel guilty anymore. It's the same with parenting. Our children feel guilt, really, discipline is a way for the guilt to be, they know they're guilty, so discipline is a way for their guilt to be removed. So they've done something wrong, they know it's wrong, disobedience, they feel guilt, they, then they pay the price, whatever that is, through discipline, and then they don't have to feel guilty anymore, and at the same time, your relationship is restored. Say they've disobeyed, so they've kind of broken the relationship. They feel guilty about it, but they kind of want to do what they want to do. They get punished. Well, then the guilt is gone, and the relationship's fixed. That's kind of how punishment should work, and that's what's missing a lot of times in parenting where there's not enough discipline is there's no way to interact with the guilt. So that's discipline, but that's not the only thing Paul said. He's, the two positives were discipline and instruction. Instruction involves teaching them to do right. Instruction involves warning them about doing wrong, pointing them in the right directions. Kids don't know what they don't know. They don't have your experiences. Our job is to teach them. And then there's a a transition that happens uh, as they get a little older as children that uh, the transition is from sort of a corporal punishment or a lot of discipline toward uh, leading them, teaching them through influence. And because your relationship grows over time. Now, I'll kind of throw out Uh, Some framework, again, this is not Bible stuff. This is just kind of experience stuff. Basically, your kid, and this this is a way I'm going to explain it. There's basically four stages of parenting. Okay, you have your discipline years start about one year old. Before that, you know, they just need nourishment. They don't know. But you'll you'll see it in your kids, you know, around one, they start being able to talk a little bit. 
And now they'll also, you'll realize that they know that they're doing what you're telling them not to do because you can start to communicate with them. And so this, these are the years that you want to kind of get your discipline. And, and it should be age appropriate. You just need to, to start gently with them. But there are times where they start learning a new word and their new word is no. You'll tell them to do something. They'll say no. You have to deal with that somehow. You just can't, you, you know, you just, you got to figure that out. In some way, you have to deal with that. And then they get a little older, two or three years old, they, and they start kind of understanding this whole concept. You'll say, you know, don't, don't go beyond this barrier, this line. And then that's when they do the things like this. <laughs> and they smile. And the worst thing you can do is laugh. <laughs> because what they're doing is they're just testing like any human being, kids are smart and they, they want to know the limits. Kids want freedom like we want freedom. We want to do what we want to do. And so when you tell them no and you put a limit on their freedom, then they want to know, well, so what? You know, well, I, don't, I want to do this. And so there's a little battle of the wills. You have to start dealing with that. So discipline years and training years. Basically, most of your discipline happens right here. And if you get it right, it sort of decreases as you go. Then you have your coaching years, your friendship years. Here's the biggest mistake. A lot of the training years is you're trying to figure out between disobedience and childishness. If they make mistakes because of childishness, that's not something that you punish them for. But if they're directly defying you, you have to deal with it. But so discipline... As you do this, here's the biggest mistake that, in my opinion, parents make. They don't get the discipline right during these two phases. And, be, and the reason is because they can control their children through size and power. In other words, you're in these phases and you're saying, go sit down. And they don't sit down, so you just physically pick them up and sit them down. That, and, and so you're doing it that way. Here's the problem with that. If you don't get this discipline down, then they get to this age and you cannot physically control them anymore. They're too big for you to pick up. So now you cannot control them through size and power. They're as big as you are. And then, this is the biggest mistake, you start trying to discipline here and it doesn't work. It's too late. You have to get the discipline here. And so as you move into the, through the, here, you're, more of your parenting is through influence rather than correction. So you get, then the other, the other, the second biggest mistake I think parents make is you have this friendship years and they want to be friends with their kids. I mean, that's the goal for all of us. We want to end up and have a great relationship with our adult children. But they start this too early. They start trying to be a friend in here. And, you know, it just, it kind of doesn't work. It's like, hey, parents, you cannot be friends with your middle schooler. I mean, that's just kind of the way it is. They need a parent from you. They have friends. They need you to be a parent. And if you get this right, when you get here, you will have a lasting, great adult relationship with your kids if you can nail this in the right way. So um, maybe the biggest question I get asked from parents 
It's because physical punishment is sort of a last resort for those who use that kind of discipline like we did. And so it's a last resort. So when do I use it? When do I resort to the last resort? What's, what, what offense is big enough for that? Because, you know, kids do a lot of things that, that aren't exactly right. And basically, I would answer that with three things. Three things, and, and here they are. Disobedience, this is direct disobedience. Do this, no, you've got to deal with that. Dishonesty, that's lying to you. You have to deal when, you're, with your, when your child lies to you, that breaks the relationship. So you just have to deal with that. One of the rules has to be, in our family, we don't lie. You cannot lie to your parents. And then disrespect, because all these really have to do with relationship. That's what we have to most deal with in our discipline. Now they do things wrong. They don't keep the room clean, this, that, and the other thing. These things, you know, those are not moral issues. These are moral issues, we have to deal with them. And deal with, dealing with these at the appropriate time will ensure that our relationship stays primary, that our relationship remains intact because all of our discipline is to either foster relationship or mend relationship. I'll give you an example. Of course, maybe in this last one, you know, typically we would think, well, that's what happens during the teenage years. There's disrespect that goes on. Here's what I heard from a parent. It was really genius. But, but in their teenage years, you're not doing physical punishment anymore, even if you did before. And so, well, how do I punish? What do I do? So I heard a parent talking. He said uh, his teenage son, who was old enough to drive, did something that was very respectful, disrespectful to his mom. And really, guys, dads, we're the ones that should deal with that first. I mean, moms can deal with that, but we should take the leadership. When children are disrespectful to our wives, we need to deal with that. Well, so the dad, trying to do things in a biblical way, was thinking this through. How do I punish in a way that promotes or fosters relationships? And so he figured this because he's saying, well, I could take the keys, take the car away. I could do this. I could do that. But, you know, then there's just a time and it kind of goes on. It doesn't seem like things get mended. So here's what he did. He went to his teenage son a couple days later and he said, you know, I told you I was going to deal with this. He said, here's your punishment. You have to ask your mom out for a date. And the, the student knew he was in trouble. And he's like, first he said, what? And then he's like, that, really? That's it? Yeah, that's it. So then he goes, he asks his mom out for a date, which basically, you know, how moms can be sometimes, reduce mom to a puddle. And, and then they planned this date, and then he took her out, and they went out and had dinner together and had a conversation, didn't have anything to do with the offense. But see what that did? That was, call it a punishment. It was, it was a discipline that mended the relationship that was broken through the disrespect. Does that make sense? So as parents, especially of teenagers, we need to be very creative and very smart about how we can leverage discipline 
in a way that mends relationship. And you might not always be able to come up with the perfect thing. The point is we're always disciplining to build relationship. That's what we're trying to do. Now, if, if you're married and you're parenting as a team, the great thing about what Scripture tells us is one of the best gifts that you can give to your children and your teenagers is keeping your marriage healthy. There's really no substitute for that. You know, that's just a great gift. Now, a lot of us, you know, people here didn't have that necessarily, but if your parents stay together like mine did, you know, that's, that's huge. It, it really teaches us a lot. We want to model marriage to teach our kids you know, how to deal with conflict and how to make a go of it. It's, it's invaluable. And the other thing is, is we're always wanting to encourage conversation, especially with teenagers. Encourage conversation. You know, your kids are young. They come home and tell you everything, right? Just, you know, they just talk, talk, talk. They just tell you everything. They have no filter. They, you know, they just blurt it all out. Then they become teenagers and their first response or their kind of natural inclination is to come home and tell mom and dad everything. And that's a good thing. That, that's what you want, conversation. But in my opinion, that gets stifled a lot of times because of the way parents react. Okay, so let me explain that. Child comes home, they're 13, 14 years old. Now they're a little bigger. And so kids are doing a few more things. And so the stakes kind of are higher, you know, and things are going on in their life and they're going to maybe parties and hanging around with people. And, and then they come home and they, they blurt out, you know, hey, this is what happened at school. It could be a good thing or a bad thing. It's not always bad. It could even be good. And then a lot of times the parents, especially one of the parents, tends to overreact to that information. And then, whoa, stop. What did you say? Boom, boom, boom. And then all of a sudden you're into this big old car. And what that teaches kids, teenagers, over time is it shuts them down. And so they're realizing, well, I need to be careful what I say because last time that got into a big old messy conversation. You know, so, there, so I'm saying there's another way to do this. Again, just my opinion. There's another way to do this. When kids come home and start telling you everything, just let it go. Just, oh, uh-huh, yeah, just nod and uh-huh. And then, you know, and then Billy did this and then we did that. You know, and then, of course, the fire department had to come. And then, you know, and the, and the whole time you're just going, uh-huh, okay, wow, wow. That's, and, and don't react. Moms especially, don't, don't, don't overreact. And then let them tell you all that. And then you've kept the relationship and you've kept this conversation feeling going. They, they're not shut down. And then, I'm not saying don't deal with it, maybe a day or two or maybe next week you come back around, assuming that they weren't the primary ones involved in this, and say, hey, you know, you know, Johnny, you told me last week about the fire tomorrow, you know, there's probably a better way that could have been handled. And you use it as a teaching moment, but not when they're telling you. Does that make sense? Again, just an opinion. Just keep that conversation. Why? Because you want relationship. We want a parent from relationship. Everything we're doing is for relationship. Now, here, here's the thing. Some, are at a dis- some here are at a disadvantage because you were parented badly. Uh, you know, not, I'm not trying to jam on your parents. I'm just saying, you know, not everybody does everything right. You, you just had bad parents. They might have been great people, but bad parents, you know. 
And that's set you at a disadvantage. And here, here's what I'm telling you. And, and there's a lot of broken families and that a whole bunch of situations be represented here this morning. Here's what I'm telling you. You, where you feel like, you know, I've, I've come from parents, you know, it wasn't good or especially a lot of times when you've had a bad father, it even, and that has been really, really bad, it affects how you see God and it messes you up. Here's what I'm telling you. You can break the cycle by parenting God's way. You can break the cycle. You can turn your life around. You can change your family history. You can. Starting today, you can change your future family's history by doing parenting God's way, by, by getting on this. And I know some of you might be starting late and you're saying, well, I forgot the discipline. Yeah, now I'm trying to discipline as a teenager. It's not working. Now I'm losing my kids over discipline. You know, there's ways to fix that. You need to, you know, just meet with them, apologize, tell them what you've done wrong. Just put it out there. Be transparent and say, we, we got to change some stuff. And I know you don't feel it, but it's really for you. And get that right. You see, this is one of those areas that for believers, we have an advantage. Whether you came from a broken home or not, or good parents or bad parents, we have an advantage in that we have this example of a loving father, what Jay was singing about. Good, good father. And... And having this relationship with God shows us how to love others, especially our kids. It makes all the difference in the world. And not everybody here is a believer. Not everybody here has experienced that love of God. But I'm telling you, if if you're here, I don't believe you're here by accident. And if you don't have a relationship with God, I believe that God has placed you here right now, this moment, to hear for the first time or one more time that there's a God, a creator God in heaven who knows you, knows everything about you, knows every secret that you have. And he loves you dearly. He loves you more than you can even imagine. He created you. He gave you freedom to love him back and to love others. Now we know that we've all misused that freedom when we've, we've done wrong. We've rebelled against our heavenly father. But God has loved us so much that he allowed his son to come. And die for us to experience the discipline we should experience because our rebellion is so great against a righteous God that it's separation from him forever is the just and right punishment. But Jesus Christ, infinite God, comes and he dies on the cross to take our punishment. He takes the discipline that we can't take in order to restore our relationship with him. I'll tell you, a lot of people talk about all of us are children of God. And, and I get that, and that, that kind of makes sense. But that's not actually what the Bible says. 
The Bible doesn't say we're all children of God. The Bible says we're all creation of God. The Bible says, uh, you know, we all should serve God, that we should be obedient to God. The, the Bible says that God will judge all of us. The Bible says that God loves all of us. But when the Bible talks about us as being children of God, he's only talking about those who have responded to him by faith. There's actually, uh, all through the Bible, there are all these terms to describe God. Maybe one of the most interesting terms to describe God is Abba, Father. It's used three times in the New Testament. Abba, Father, it's not even a Greek word. It's an Aramaic word, and it's best translated, Daddy. Our Daddy, Father. And what we have in that is a snapshot of, here's the God of the universe. But when we come into a relationship with him through faith, it's like he's our daddy. And it implies the intimacy and the trust that a young child has in his or her father. That's the relationship that God is offering all of us. That's what he wants for all of us. You can read about that in scripture, but I'm telling you, don't leave here today without knowing that there's a God who's created you and he loves you and he's paid a dear infinite price to restore the broken relationship that we have with God. And he's calling us, inviting us, all are not children of God, but all are loved by God and all are invited to become children of God. But we have to respond in faith. And that means believing who Jesus is, the Son of God, and trusting that, that what he did for us is enough to restore our broken relationship with the Father. He took the discipline. He took the punishment that really was ours that we couldn't afford to take to reconcile us, to, to heal, to restore the relationship between us, sinful people, and him, righteous God. Jay's going to come and, and close us out here. Pray for Jay. He's, uh, he's sticking it out even though he's, he's sick and we're so thankful to have him. We're glad that he's here as he leads us to praise our Father. But as he comes and plays, I want to close in prayer, and then I'd like to go a little old school, just have a time of invitation while Jay sings. And while we're singing, I want us to reflect on what the words are saying, how God has blessed us as a good Father. And if you're not in relationship with him through faith, Hey, there's no better time to respond to him. Cry out to God. Respond to him today. He's inviting you in. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for, for being a, a perfect father. God, for loving us. Lord, even though we're unlovely, even though we don't deserve it. Lord, you give us value. You love us. You care about us. And you love us with action. Lord, by allowing your one and only son to take our punishment, our discipline that we couldn't afford to pay so that we can be reconciled, so that our relationship with you could be 
restored. And that's the model for all our discipline. God, so for those of us who are believers, Father, we pray that you'd help us to love you back, uh, to just internalize the love that you have for us. And we pray that that would spill out into other people's lives, especially if we have kids, that we would love our kids that way. And Father, for, for our friends that are here who are not believers, God, that, that they would just experience your love or that they would just come to realize that you love them more than they've ever dreamed and you've paid a price to, to take care of their punishment so that you can be restored in relationship. Lord, help them to see that. Lord, and maybe even this would be the day that they would come into relationship with you. God, thanks for loving us. Help us to focus our hearts on you in the next couple of minutes. In Christ's name, amen.